Philippians 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a seat back near you. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible. That is our gift to you. We're going to be in Philippians 2. We've actually been there for the last two weeks, um, and so we're going to finally get through uh, the first, we've been in the first 11 verses for the last two weeks, and we're going to actually get out of that. Uh, we're going to finish that up this week and keep moving forward starting next week. So in verses 1 and 2, just to catch you up if you haven't been around, in verses 1 and 2, we saw Paul remind the church of the great realities of living the Christian life, that there is encouragement in Christ, that there is comfort in love, that there is sympathy and empathy, that there is um, comfort in the relationships. And he said, it, because of all these truths, because of all the things that make what Christian life, what Christian community looks like, then in verses 3 and 4, he challenged the church to live self-sacrificing. He challenged the church to put others before themselves, to serve one another and not let there be any conflict in the church. And so here in the passage we're going to look at this morning in verses 5 through 11, Paul realizes that what he challenged the church to do, to be in unity, to, be, uh, to avoid conflict, to put others before yourself, is hard and messy. Remember, the New Testament church at the time is made up of people who, you have the Jewish people who grew up under the law, grew up under, um, under that you know, rites and rituals, and then you have Gentiles, non-Jews, people who have no church background, no worship background, and if they do have any, it's toward a pagan god. And so now these two very different groups of people are together as a community having to figure out how do we do church together. So there was conflict, there was strife, and Paul says, look, I know this is hard, and so in the passage we're going to see this morning, realizing his request is hard, Paul gives the church and us someone to look to as our example. Someone to look to for how to live this servant, selfless lifestyle. Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we are going to jump in to Philippians 2. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day, another chance to be here and worship you, God. God, what a joy it is to gather together and worship you to get to spend time as a community with our minds and our hearts fixed on you. God, you have us studying this letter. You have us studying this book at this time for a reason. You have us here this morning because you have something you want us to hear. You have something to say to each of our hearts this morning. Lord, give us confidence in the power of the gospel. Give us clarity in understanding your truths. And as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So for the last few weeks, we've been reading this whole section, and we're going to do it again today. So we're going to start in the, right at the beginning of chapter 2 and read through uh, verse 11. So uh, you can read along with me. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has, exalt, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So where we last left off last week, we left off in verse 5, and 
Paul says in verse 5 here, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this self-sacrificing, have this idea of putting others before yourself, have that in you that was in Christ. Be humble. We have the ability to put others before ourselves and live this selfless lifestyle because of our relationship with Christ. We have seen what that looks like in Jesus. And so we can strive to do the same here. And then in verse 6, Paul goes on to talk about Christ and what, what it was that he did by coming to earth. And so in verse 6, he was in the form of God, but did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Though he was in the form of God. This phrase describes Jesus' pre-earthly existence. Because we have to always remind ourselves that Jesus coming to earth, Jesus being, being born here, was not the beginning of Jesus. Right, in a couple of months, well, really, it's September 25th, so like tomorrow we're going to start seeing Christmas decorations in the stores. And we celebrate and we rejoice that God stepped into reality, it stepped into earth, and Emmanuel, God with us, and it's amazing and great, and we rejoice and celebrate it. But that wasn't the beginning of Jesus. Jesus has always existed, and we have to constantly be reminding ourselves of that. He is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. Him coming to earth had a very specific point, had a specific time, a beginning and an end, but his existence does not. And so the word form there says he, was in the, he is in the form of God. That word form is uh, his essence, his being, his very core, the unchangeable, unshakable attribute about who he is, is that he is God. Though the appearance changed when he came to earth, the form, the essence, didn't change. It would be like if you took uh, the seed of a flower, okay? And that seed, you know, it's a daisy, right? And so it's a daisy, even though it looks like a seed. And you put that seed in the ground, and you water it, and you give it sunlight, and it starts to grow up, and it's, you know, it's got the stem, it's got some leaves on it, still a daisy. And then it finally fully blooms in the flower, and it's beautiful, still a daisy. It was a daisy that whole time. Its essence, its core, never changed, though the appearance did. That's what this word is, is that even though Jesus came and took on an earthly form for a specific time, he was still God. Even though he became human, his core never changed. Before he came to earth, Jesus existed in full and total, complete power and glory, with total and complete authority and control over all existence. And when he came to earth, he was still totally and completely God in the flesh. We heard this morning, Colossians 1.15, all of the beginning of Colossians, Paul is talking um, about Jesus, and he says in 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews 1.3, it says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus on earth was the exact imprint of God's nature. So you want to know what God was like, you want to see how he would have lived, you look to Jesus. And yet, even though he was fully God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, which means he was and is equal to God. As we saw in the verses we just read, Jesus is God. Even when he entered into humanity, it was known, everybody known. If you experienced Jesus, if you interacted with Jesus, you knew he was God. In John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you skip down to John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Mark 1, which we read this week in our hashtag two-year journey, as we're reading through the Bible, we got to get into Mark. And so we read in Mark 1, 
that John the Baptist, John the Baptist talks about Jesus and says, Jesus, this one is coming after me who is going to bring a presence into the people. He's going to bring the Holy Spirit to the people. Only God could do that. Later on in Mark 1, a man who is possessed by a demon interacts with Jesus. And there's actually a bunch of demons in him. And this man says to Jesus, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Even the demons knew that this man, this son of a carpenter, was God. In Mark 2, Jesus interacts with a paralytic man, and he tells him, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and the leaders flip out, because forgiving sins is a, is a job, is a role only reserved for God. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And so the leaders flip out because they don't know. They don't realize Jesus is exactly who he says he is. God in the flesh. Others saw him as God. He himself knew he was God. Even the demons said, yes, that guy, that's God in the flesh. He was equal with God. So what do we mean when we say he did not account, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? This phrase, a thing to be grasped, it paints a picture of a treasure that is sought after and clamored for, and you get it finally, and you cling to it, and you hold on to it. Nothing is going to stop you. Once you get that thing, you are going to cling to it no matter what is happening around you. The house might be on fire, but you have that treasure. It's finding something valuable and not letting any situation, any circumstance, pry your grip away from that treasure. Jesus had the full and complete power and authority of God. He dwelled in heaven, reigning and ruling, and yet even though he had all of that, he had this treasured position, he didn't see it as something he had to keep to himself. It was something that he had, that was he possessed, and so because it was his, he was able to lay it aside. He was able to set it aside. It would make so much sense, wouldn't it, if Jesus would have just said, nope, I'm not going. I don't want to go and deal with that world. It's broken, it's sinful, it's dark, it's dirty. They don't even have football or iPhones yet. Why in the world would I want to go there? It would make so much sense. Why would the ultimate creator of all existence, why would God want to enter into this? Because he didn't see his position as something to be clung to. Because he knew that if he did that, if he stayed in heaven, if he didn't come to earth, we would still be under the wrath of God. We would still be in trouble. If he didn't lay down his position, we would all still be under the wrath of God. We would all still have to pay that penalty for our sins on our own. He didn't see his role, his place, as something to cling to, but instead he let go of it. We have trouble letting go of how others see us, don't we? We have trouble letting go of that idea of, I want to paint this perfect picture of my life, of what's going on. And so we come to church and we, you know, there's a reason it's the phrase Sunday best, right? You put on the best face, you put on your best clothes, and we, we come in and we pretend like everything's fine, everything's great. We don't want to let people in. We don't want to let people know something might be actually wrong with us. Sometimes we don't even want to let ourselves know. We convince ourselves and we cling to this false reality for ourselves that everything is fine, and we try and convince ourselves of that. We cling to and we grasp at this desire to be the very best, to have everything fine all the time and to never need anyone. I don't need anyone. I don't need anyone's help. I got this. 
We cling to this fake concept of having it all together when in actuality, we are broken and tired. Or sometimes we just cling to actual physical stuff. Right? We like stuff. And once you get that thing, that new phone, that new car, that house, you get that stuff and it's yours and it's the best and nothing is going to take the shine off of it until you know, the next new cool thing comes out and then you want to cling after that. Jesus saw his position, his rights, his place in heaven, not as something to cling to, but he was able to let it go. And so we see in verse 7 that he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant born in the likeness of men. Look at verse 7. Made himself nothing. Some translations, the, the more famous translation of that is he emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. Now some are going to read that and say that means Jesus gave up some of his deity, some of his godness to become human. That he set some of that aside and was somehow less God in the flesh. No. That's impossible. It's impossible to say that he could somehow remove part of his deity. He couldn't do that. He couldn't make himself any less God. He couldn't subtract from himself. Instead, instead of subtracting from himself, he just added on his humanness. In, uh, in the movie Aladdin, and pretty much any story that has this same kind of plot point in it, uh, at one point the princess uh, is tired of her cushy lifestyle and she wants to leave the palace. And she wants to go and figure out what it's like to be a normal person, a normal kid. And so she puts on the, you know, the garb of uh, what a street rat, what a commoner would be, even though she kept the tiara, which I didn't understand. But she goes and she does, has this little adventure with Aladdin and she gets into trouble and learns what it's like to be a normal person. And then they get in trouble and they get arrested and just when the guards are about to take them away, she smartly removes the head covering and says, hi, I got the tiara. I am actually the princess. You are, work for me. And then they decide to let her go. At any point during that whole sequence, when they're running around and causing trouble, she wasn't any less of a princess. She wasn't any less of in control of the land. She just chose not to exercise her rights and privileges and reputation at that time. Jesus, as a human, was no less God. He had no less of himself, no less deity. His essence was the same. One of the commentaries I read said, he did not set aside any of the attributes that were rightly his. However, he did voluntarily limit himself to being a human being. With genuine humanity came certain restrictions. He could only be at one place at one time. He needed to eat and rest and sleep. He could feel pain, bleed, and die. Before he became a man, he had no such restrictions. So yes, there were things about becoming a human that had to change, but that didn't make him any less God. There was nothing that he removed from himself. He just voluntarily chose not to act on certain aspects of who he is to become fully human. Because, and the ultimate point here, this is a topic, this is an idea that people have been arguing, writing books and papers about for generations. The ultimate point Paul is trying to get at here is that Jesus coming to earth in the way that he did as a human saw him set aside and not act on his privileges that he deserved because they were his. The rights and privileges of being who he is, he set aside. And he did it for a purpose. He did it for a point. In comparison to his complete, exalted, glorious status in heaven, 
being human was the equivalent of making himself nothing. Making himself of no reputation. Emptying himself. It says he took on, not only that he emptied himself, that he made himself of no reputation, but that he was, took on the form of a servant. Again, that word form. It's his essence, his very being. When Jesus came to earth, he embodied what a servant is. Christ took on the form, the very essence of being a servant. He was entered into an intentional servanthood. He came not only as a human man, but as a servant. He had no earthly power and riches. His mom was a teenager. His dad was a blue-collar carpenter. They were, he was born in the middle of nowhere. He's poor, and he doesn't seem to have a home. If you read the Gospels, he's traveling all the time, and he's not inviting people over to his house. He's not hosting dinners. He's inviting himself into other people's homes. Everything he does, he does for other people. He heals, he feeds, he teaches, he listens, he prays. All these things he does for others. And so here, when we start to think about Jesus' life and the way he served and lived, it is here that Paul is connecting back to what he told the church to do, what he called the church to do in verses 3 and 4. To put, make others more significant than yourself. To serve others. Put others before yourself. This humility he talked about, we see it on full display in the fact that Jesus embodied what a servant is. We see it on full display because Jesus lived this way. The Almighty King came and not only became a man, but he became a servant. He became the lowest of low. It says he was born in the likeness of men. Jesus had the likeness of men. He was completely and fully man. But that wasn't, not, that wasn't all that was, he was about. That wasn't all that was his essence. There was more to him than that. He had more about him. He was fully human and fully God. He's like us, but he's also not like us. Somebody said, to affirm likeness is at once to assert similarity and to deny sameness. To assert similarity and to deny sameness. Yeah, he's a human. Yeah, he's a man. He could eat and sleep and drink and, and he could bleed and die. But at the same time, he's still fully God. And so from the total highest place, he comes to the very lowest. The almighty, powerful ruler of all creation became a baby, could not take care of himself, had to learn how to walk and talk. He lived as we live. He was a man. He was fully and completely God, yes, but he was also fully and completely human. And I know I'm repeating that over and over again because it's something that we just have to put into our brains. And it's one of those things that we can sit and talk about and, and theorize and try and figure out until he comes back. He lived a human life. He had emotions. He went through hard things. He experienced grief and pain. He saw his friends die. He saw the ramifications of sin on this earth. Which means, because he lived a human life, that when we experience the hard and ugly and messy parts of being in this creation, we can pray, we can talk to him, we can seek counsel and comfort from Christ. And he gets it. He understands what it means to be a human. He understands what it means to be one of us, to experience the brokenness of this world. He's not a far-off God. He didn't create things and say, well, go figure it out. He entered in. He experienced it himself. 
because he was born and he lived as we have. He took on human form. Look at verse 8. To do what he was planning to do, to, to enter in and do what he had to do, he had to take on a human form. He had to be fully human. He had to be able to physically experience humanity because he was going to have to physically die. Verse 8 says he humbled himself. He humbled himself enough to allow himself to come in the form of a baby born to nobodies from the middle of nowhere. He humbled himself through the way, not only that he came, but the way he lived. I mean, all the things that we've talked about, taking the likeness of men, choosing to set aside some of his rights and privileges, that's Christ, that's his humility on display. Everything about him entering into humanity was intentional. It was thought out, it had a purpose. And not only that, he knew his purpose. He knew what he came here to do, and yet he waited. He waited 30 years. He waited 30 years to start preaching and teaching. He waited 30 years, and then when he does finally enter into his ministry, start preaching and teaching and healing and doing these miracles, he's hanging out with a bunch of nobodies. He didn't walk up to the high priest's door. He didn't march into Jerusalem, knock on the high priest's door, and say, hey, guess what? I'm in charge now. He didn't go to Rome. He didn't go to Caesar and say, you know what? You're no longer in control. I am. I have the power and authority. Instead, he spent time with men who were just common guys. Fishermen, tax collectors, just random dudes that society said, eh, you're just kind of taking up space. He poured into those men. He spent time with them. The very way the people he associated with, the way he carried himself, was his humility on display. And we see it in his obedience. When you read the Gospels, you often see this phrase. You see the phrase, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus lived. He lived his life according to the will of the one who sent him. He lived his life according to the will of God the Father. He lived obediently. He lived in such a way to, to live the life that God mapped out so that the scriptures might be fulfilled so that people can point and say, that's him. He's doing the things that God promised us he was going to do. He was regularly in prayer, regularly being guided by the Holy Spirit. He let God lead him as he lived. When you look at the story of Lazarus, he stands there in front of the tomb and he prays to God. Why? Because he wants people to see he's dependent on God the Father. He's, he's asking God the Father to make this happen. He was obedient to God's will, even when it was hard. He knew what he came to do. He knew the plan going in. He knew the point of him entering into humanity, and he knew what waited for him. He knew that everything he did was leading him to the cross. He knew he had to be obedient and die to make it possible for us to have an eternal life with God. Jesus did what we couldn't do, what we wouldn't do, what we flat out won't do. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He was never an enemy or a rebel against God. Our sin and our rebellion against God demands a death, demands a consequence. Jesus came to pay that demand. He came to pay that penalty. He knew that was the ultimate reason he was here, to die for us, to be that perfect substitution, to die in our place, to take on the full and complete wrath of God. And in dying, he paid the penalty for us. 
The sins you and I have committed have been paid in full by Jesus. And in doing so, made it possible for us to have a new relationship with God. So that anyone believes that Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection pays not only pays the penalty for their sins, but makes it possible for them to have a right relationship with God. To be seen as his son or daughter. He was obedient even to the point of death, knowing that that death was what it was going to take for us to escape the wrath of God. He was obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why does Paul emphasize that? Even death on a cross. Why stress that point? Because the cross was so horrible, so vile, so ugly. It was a death of not only excruciating pain, because you took these nails and the nails went through your wrists and your feet. You got hung up to a piece of wood and stretched out. And the way you actually die from crucifixion is you suffocate. Because you are nailed to this piece of wood, your lungs can't expand. And so you have to prop yourself up. You have to try and put the weight on these nails that are going through you to prop yourself up a little bit so that you can get a regular piece of get some air. And then you sling back down and your body over time, exhausts itself where you can't do that anymore, and now you can't take in deep breaths. And eventually, you would slowly suffocate. I say eventually because it could take hours. It could take days. There were times where they would go up to the people on the cross and they would break their legs so that they couldn't press themselves up so that they would suffocate quicker. We don't have anything like this today. This was government-approved, public, and humiliating. It was reserved for the lowest of low. You had to be some kind of awful to be crucified. The Romans saw this as so degrading, so humiliating, that there was actually a law that said, if you are a Roman citizen, no matter how bad you are, you cannot be crucified. You could be the worst of the worst, but if you're a Roman citizen, you didn't have to go through that because that's how low they thought of this. That's how vile it was. Jesus, God Almighty, the all-powerful, all-loving, all-righteous, all-perfect, became a man, came to earth as a humble baby, grew up and lived as the son of a carpenter, spent years with a bunch of nobodies, and then allowed himself to be arrested, beaten, abandoned, and killed. And not only killed, but killed in a public, shaming, humiliating, ugly, grotesque fashion. One of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said, he stoops and he stoops and he stoops. And when he reaches our level and he becomes man, he still stoops and stoops and stoops lower and deeper still. God in the flesh came and not only humbled himself to become a man, that in itself was enough, but then he found the worst possible way to die and did it. All of this that Christ did, his obedience and humility, his setting aside of his rights and privileges, the way he considered us and our need for a Savior and put that ahead of his own well-being, this is how Christians are supposed to act. This is what Paul is talking about, this self-sacrificing humility. 
this servant lifestyle, the way Christ took on this role for us to save us from the wrath of God, even when it meant pain and humiliation, that's how we're supposed to care for one another. This is what Paul is communicating by reminding them of Christ coming to earth. All of this, all 5 through 11, is to say this is, this is the template, this is the guy to look to on how to do verses 3 and 4. And we see, though, in verse 9, that this obedience and this humility of Christ led to something else. Look at verse 9 with me. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and in every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In light of Christ's humility and obedience, he says, therefore, so... So in light of what we just talked about, in light of the way he lived, that Christ, all of the things Christ did on our behalf by becoming a servant, humbling himself, God has exalted him. God, in making himself a lowly servant and becoming obedient to God's will, he is restored back to his rightful, exalted place. Even more so because now he has conquered sin, death, and hell. He has proven the power and authority and note that it's not Jesus exalting himself here, but God the Father exalting him. Through his obedience, God the Father exalts Christ. We, humans, mocked him. We laughed at him. We crucified him. God the Father exalts him. So that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It's going to happen eventually. It's going to happen. There is coming a day when Christ returns to fix what is broken, to set right what has gone so terribly wrong in this world. And everyone, all of creation, will acknowledge his authority and power and position as king and lord. It'll either be an acknowledgement out of joy and respect and gratitude and reverence, for the salvation that he gave and the new identity that he gave, or it'll be shame and terror as his enemies bow, knowing they have been defeated by the great and perfect king. One way or the other, you will glorify God. One way or the other, you will acknowledge that he is king and lord. It just matters on what side you're on. And seeing that happen, Right at the end there in verse 11, this is going to happen, why? To the glory of God the Father. Christ's sacrifice and exaltation all ultimately brings glory to God the Father. The highest honor we can have in our lives, the thing that we can do that lives into what we were made to do is bring glory and honor to God the Father through the way we live. And so as we go forward trying to live in such a way that brings glory to God, we do so by looking at Jesus as our example. By doing nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves, looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Jesus did that by setting aside his position to go from the highest, greatest, ultimate position to the lowest, and lowliest position to serve you and me. This section of Scripture, these six or seven verses, this isn't Paul writing to the Philippians and like 
wanting to start a theological discussion amongst them. He's not trying to help them start writing a term paper for their Bible class. This is written to equip them to endure the hardships they experience in their lives. This is written to equip them on, look, it's messy and hard to be a church. Let this motivate you. Let this equip you. Let this get you ready on how to do that. It's written to help them to practice real Christian unity, even when it's hard and messy and uncomfortable, and sometimes even to your own detriment. Christ coming to earth, dying and raising again, isn't just something to think about and discuss, but to equip and encourage and challenge us to live in the here and the now. Let's pray. God, you are good. God, I know I start my prayer like that every week, but after reading your scripture, after reading and remembering and praying through and talking about what it is that you did, how sending your son to die for us, sending Jesus to come and take this form and die for us, how can we not have any other reaction than, God, you're good. God, you're loving, but you're also just. You knew that there had to be a payment. You knew that there had to be someone to take on the wrath of God, and so you decided to send your son. God, we are humbled by that. There's not enough days left for us to thank and praise you. Oh God, let let the life of Christ be our motivator, be our guide. Let the gospel be something we rediscover daily. The good news that there is new life to be had in those who believe in Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. Let that be the fuel for our fire. Let that be the thing that motivates us to love and serve one another as Christ loved and served us. God, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, who doesn't have a relationship with you, who hasn't made a decision about what they think about you, about Jesus, about the cross, Lord God, break down whatever wall, whatever thing is stopping them. God, let today be a day of salvation, a day, that day for them, that day where they finally experience the love and grace that you show, that you have for us. Lord, we thank you for what you have done for generations, the way you keep your promises and you continue to, the way you are paying attention and caring for us, even when it seems like darkness is winning. We know you're in control. We know you care. God, we thank you for who you are, what you have done, and what you continue to do. And we pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.